This morning, I want to share with you something that happened to me that has something to do with you this morning. Oh, I would say maybe a month and a half ago, perhaps, in my morning Bible reading, the thought came to my mind, preach a sermon on motives. Now, have you ever noticed when you're reading your Bible, how many thoughts can just come to your mind? I think the devil does that many times. You'll remember, I need to do this. I need to remember to do that. And the way I, the way I beat the devil on that is I keep on my desk a little piece of paper. And when I'm reading my Bible or praying, and one of these thoughts come up, remember to do this, remember to do that, I just stop and write it down. I say, okay, devil, I won't have to think about that anymore. I've written it down. And I move on. Well, this thought came to my mind about preach a sermon on motives. Well, I was not reading anything about motives, and I just thought, well, you know, I don't, I'll think about that later, and I got back to my Bible reading. Well, a few, a few days later, this thought came back again, preach a sermon on motives. And I thought to myself, now, wait a minute, this may be God saying to me, preach a sermon on motives, or maybe I'm just thinking about preach a sermon on motives, whatever. But I came to the conviction that God had put on my heart and in my mind to preach a sermon on motives. So I schedule to do that today, which is what I'm going to do. Now, when I'm preaching what we would call an expository sermon, that is you just have a portion of Scripture and all your sermon is going to be built around that same portion of Scripture. For example, if I were preaching a sermon on this morning on the parable of the sower, now you remember that parable. Well, the what I would do, I would, I would get, the way I get up a sermon is the old way. I think it's the best way. When I, and I start to get up a sermon, I just get my Bible and a blank yellow pad. Now, ultimately, it's going to get on a computer. But to start with, this is what it starts with. And I just simply take my Bible. If I were going to preach on the parable of the sower, I would read in Matthew chapter 13 about the parable of the sower. Then I would look to see, now, is this parable in another of the Gospels? And it is. It's in Mark chapter 4. It's in Luke chapter 8. So what I would do, I would read all the Scripture in Matthew 13. I'd make little notes, things I notice. Then I'd go to Mark chapter 4, and I'd do the same thing. I'd go to Luke chapter 8, and I'd do the same thing. Then I'd begin to see what is said in this gospel that's not said in that gospel. I'd underline words I wanted to study. And that's kind of how I began preparing a sermon. And I keep going till I have that sermon pretty well structured. And at the end, I'm going to look at some commentaries and other sermons to see, hey, maybe others have something I've missed. But I don't start there. Now, I hate to say this. I fear that's where many pastors, I, I fear that's where they start. What they do, they just read what somebody else said it said. Well, my gracious, if you're going to do that, just tell y'all to stay home and read the book. Uh, I want to know what God has to say to me that I see to share with the people. Now, if I'm going to preach a topical sermon, which I'm going to do this morning, the topic is motive. Motive. I'm going to preach a sermon about motives. Well, I add one other little start step. I get my dictionary. You have dictionaries at home. I just get my dictionary. Now, I know what motive is, but I want to see how Webster defines motive. So I get my dictionary, and I look up the word motive. I've got my little yellow pad, 
I write Webster motive. And I, here's what Webster says if you get your dictionary. He says motive is something that causes you to act. And then in the dictionary I had, after something, there was a parenthesis that said, need or desire that causes you to act. Then it had another parenthesis. It said to do something or not do something. So what is a motive? <laughs> motive is a need or a desire that causes you and me to act, to do something. Everything we do, we do because we had a motive based on a need or a desire to do that very thing. Now, once I've done that, then I get my Bible. The only thing on my yellow pad now is, a, is a, what Webster said the word meant. And I say, okay, I'm going to my Bible and I'm going to look up, I'm going to find out a little word study of every place in the Bible where I run across the word motive. And I'm going to jot these little references down on his yellow pad, then I'm going to go and read those portions of scriptures. Now get ready for this. Here came the shocker. My preaching Bible is the New King James Version. I use this because no matter what translation you have, you can probably follow me if I read from this. By the way, if you've not picked up one of those translation booklets, I encourage you when you leave today, go by and pick up as many as you want and read through it once and use it later on as a resource as you're reading and studying your Bible. Well, I go to my new King James and I say, okay, let me read all the places where the word motive appears. You know how many times the word motive appears in the new King James? Zero. I thought, oh my gracious. The word's not in the New King James. Let me get my old King James, 1611. That's what some of the older ones of us grew up using. I look up the word motive in the King James Version, 1611. It appears a total of zero. The word's not in the Bible in those translations. I say, well, let me get a newer translation. I'll get the English Standard for ESV. That's a great new translation. It's not all that new, but it's, it's been revised and that is new. <laughs> I look up the word motive in the ESV. It appears a total zero, not one time. I thought, well, let me go get my new American Standard Version, which is a 1901 revision of the American Standard Version. It's the most word-for-word -word translation of English things we have. And I look, and I find out that in that translation, the, the word motive appears five times. Then I take my New Living Translation, which is my really it in the New King. I love this New Living Translation, which is not new. <laughs> it first was, came out in 1994, if I remember correctly, revised in 204 and 215 or 214. So it's not all that new, but it's been revised. Well, when I go to it, I find out the word motive appears six times. So here's the bottom line. It depends on what translation you have, what words you're going to find. Now, Having said that, you say, uh-oh, are you saying some of these translations are not good? No, they're all good. Here's the problem. The Greek word for motive is the word boule, B-O-O-L-A-Y is how we would pronounce it in English. It's boule. And the translators take that one Greek word and they translate it into an English word that they think gets the idea across. And depending on what translation you have, you'll read such words as counsels, 
intentions, purposes, spirit. That, that's a good one. Like, well the, well, the lowercase s, not the Holy Spirit. Like, your spirit determines what you do. You know, what's inside of you. This intention that's inside. And you'll find it translated motive. Now, if you'll open your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 4, I'll show you what I'm talking about. 1 Corinthians chapter number 4, I'm in the New King James. Look down in verse number 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5. Therefore, judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light. Now, watch out. This is frightening almost. The hidden things of darkness. Now, that refers to inner motives, inner thoughts, inner attitudes that only God himself knows. Now, you think about this. All of your inner thoughts, all of your inner motives, all of your inner purposes that maybe no one else has ever seen. One day, the Bible said God is going to just open all those up into the light. And the real you and the real me is going to come out and reveal, now here it comes, the counsels of the heart. New King James translates boule counsels. It's talking about motive, the motives of the heart. Then each one's praise will come from God the Father. Now, let me read that verse in the New Living Translation. You'll love this. It makes sense. He <laughs> says, don't make judgments about anyone ahead of time before the Lord returns. For God will bring our darkest secrets. Now, boy, that's a, that's a, you see, we hide our darkest secrets, but one day God's going to reveal them to light. He's going to bring our darkest secrets to light and reveal our private motives. So here it is translated as motive. So depending on what translation you have, depends on what words you have. Now here's what I want to do this morning. If you'll take your bulletin, I want to journey along. I said in the first service, my goal today was to finish the sermon. I had thought about dividing this sermon, but then I thought, well, if I do that, Many who are here today won't be here next Sunday. Another bunch will come in next Sunday. Then the first thing, well, long story short, I, I did it easy, stayed right on time. I just have to keep moving. I can't chase rabbits. So if you say, if I start chasing rabbits, you just say, keep moving. Would you do that? Just say, keep moving. Say it kind of low where I won't hear it. But anyway, say it, be that as it may. Now, here's what I want to do. I want to mention, not all, but I want to mention this morning some right motives. But I want to begin first by talking about some wrong motives. So if you'll take your bulletin, we'll just fill in the blank. One of the wrong motives in life is selfish ambition. Like selfish ambition. I really fear that in my own life, and I would fear in yours as well, we may not be aware how many things we have done and how many things we do that the truth of the matter is, and God one day will reveal it, it was more about self than about God or about other people. They may have even been good things, but they were done with selfish ambition. I read this story. I thought it illustrates this well. Listen carefully. It said a lady answered the knock on her door to find a man with a sad expression. I'm sorry to disturb you, but I'm collecting money for an unfortunate family in the neighborhood. The husband's out of work. 
The kids are hungry. Utilities will be soon cut off. And worse, they're going to be kicked out of their apartment if they don't pay their rent by this afternoon. I'll be happy to help, said the woman with great concern. But who are you? And he responded, I'm the landlord. <laughs> y'all, y'all missed it. Y'all missed it. <laughs> now you got it. Well, now you know the landlords do the rent. But the landlord's motive was not really to help the people. The landlord's motive was to get the rent paid so he'd have the money. That's what you call a selfish motive. Now, Paul, if you turn over in the book of Philippians in chapter number one, Paul dealt with this very idea about selfish ambition. If you look in Philippians, now the book of Philippians, I just mentioned him, move on. Paul founded the church at Philippi, I've been to Philippi. You read that in Acts chapter 16. After he left Philippi, these people were some of his very favorite people. And, and uh, they, they sent him money to help him in his missionary work. And he wanted to write them a thank you letter. And he did. And we have the letter in the Bible. It's the book of Philippians. And he's writing them. If you look in Philippians chapter 1 verse 12, Paul said, I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. Now, he's in prison in Rome. And what he's saying is, my journey to Rome and my imprisonment in Rome, the truth of the matter is, it's worked out to spread the gospel. Verse 13, so that it became evident to the whole palace guard. Your translation may say praetorium. That's a transliteration of the Greek word. It means a special building. It means like a military government headquarters. It means a special group of men that would guard the prisoner. And I think that's what it means here. It says, it's become evident to all my prison guards and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. Oh, I'm in prison because I was preaching the gospel. And most of the brethren in the Lord, having become confident of my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. He said, because of my example, as I went through all these hard things, it has encouraged others. Have you ever noticed? Some people go through really hard things, and they keep the faith. And we stand back and watch that. And what it does, it encourages us to keep the faith. At the very same time, some people go through very hard things, really bad, and they just kind of collapse. They just kind of quit on God, blame God, do all these kind of things. Well, now we stand over and watch that, and we say, you know, that man, that woman, they went to church all the time, and they profess Christ, and now they've had something bad happen, and I don't. I don't see anything different about them than I do anybody else. I'm saying to you, when you go through something hard, it's a great opportunity to show that faith is real. Could I have an amen to that? And uh, God, you you say, well, I've tried to ask God to help you do that. It's one of those things you can't do by yourself. You just have to say, Holy Spirit, I want to be strong. And I need you to help me be strong. Well, that's what the apostle Paul had done. Now, verse 15 says, some indeed preach Christ even from envy and strife. There were those even preaching the gospel that were jealous of Paul, of his success. And what they were saying was, Paul, he wouldn't be in prison if he hadn't done something wrong. So they were trying to put him down to build themselves up. But if you notice, there's this other group they preached from goodwill. 
Those are those that were supporters of Paul. Now, he says in verse 16, the former preached Christ from self-ambition. There it is. This first group, this jealous group, even though they were preaching the gospel, they were doing so out of selfish ambition, not sincerely supposing to add affliction to my change. But the latter, his supporters out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. Verse 18, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. And in this I rejoice, yet, and I will rejoice. Paul said, look, one group's preaching with the wrong motive. One group's preaching with the right motive. But my joy is they're both preaching the gospel. I don't care what their motive is. I don't care what their group is. His joy was in the gospel. So I just simply say this and move on. I encourage you as you do things, as you make decisions, as you act, ask yourself, am I doing this for a selfish ambition rather than what I should be doing. And we'll deal with that in a moment. Another wrong motive is this wrong motive of legalism. Legalism. Now turn back in your Bible to the Gospel of John in chapter number five. That's an exciting chapter. John five is where Jesus healed this man who had been unable to walk for 38 years. And uh, it's just a remarkable story at the Pool of Bethesda. It's one of my very favorite places to go in the Holy Land. And you say, well, what would be wrong with Jesus healing a man that couldn't walk for 38 years? Well, look in chapter 5, verse 30, 16. Chapter 5, verse 16 answers that. said, for this reason, the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him. Why? Because he had done these things on the Sabbath. They said, look, it's good you've healed this man, but you messed up big time. You did it on the Sabbath, and this breaks our law. And so these religious these devout Jewish people said, what we need to do, we need to get rid of this Jesus. Now look in verse 39, Jesus kind of dealt with them. He said to them, you search the scriptures for you in them, you think that you have eternal life. And Jesus said, no, what you don't understand is these scriptures, they are they which testify of me, but you're not willing to come to me that you may have life. Now, the Jewish people back in this day, the Bible part that they had, they had gone to it and pulled out verses and taken those verses and turned them into 613 like laws. It's called the mitzvah. And what they said was, if you want to be right with God, you've got to keep each one of these laws. Well, what Jesus is saying is, look, You've missed the whole point. You're trying to be right with God by what you do, whereas you're going to be right with God based on what I will do. That's the difference. Our righteousness is not in what we do. Our righteousness is in what he has done on Calvary's cross. So that's what this whole deal is about. But this whole deal about legalism, uh, it's just such a very sad thing. You know, I, I know many sincere, good Christian people. I've grown up in the church that, uh, you know, that they're, they're just legalists. That's just really all, all you can say about them. I mean, it's like, it's like their way. This is what it says. And, you know, we've got to do it like we say this means do it. And if you don't, then you're some kind of an outcast. You're going to have to sit in the corner in heaven. Well, 
that's, a, that's, not the, that's not the spirit of Christ. We're free in Christ. Not free to disobey what God teaches, but not go through life thinking, you know, if I mess up here, I, I don't get that done there, then I'm going to be a spiritual leper. That is just not the case. You, you, can, have, you can be doctrinally right with the wrong spirit. You really can. And I know people like that. Doctrine, they're right, but their spirit's not right. I mean, it's just like, boy, you know, it's, they just, they just if, if you don't agree with everything they think about some verse in the Bible or do just what they think the verses teach, then, you know, you're just, you're just not spiritual. That's a legalist. Let me tell you two things I've observed about legalists, generally speaking. Underline, I said, generally speaking. Number one, legalists, generally speaking, are unhappy people. They really are. They're just miserable because <laughs> they can't even live up to their own what they believe. And the second thing I've noticed, generally speaking, about legalists is they're mean-spirited. They're mean-spirited. Now, it's sad to say, but in our own Southern Baptist Convention, this is what happened. We had a group that was doctrinally right, but their spirit wasn't right. And it created quite a tug of war. And then the one person that kind of held that thing together was Dr. Adrian Rogers. He, he was doctrinally solid as the Word of God, but his spirit was right, and everyone respected Adrian Rogers, and things were not good, but they weren't going apart till he died. This is my opinion. When Dr. Rogers died, the wheels came off. The wheels came off. And fast forward to today, that's been the downfall of everything we've done. It's been a downfall. One group, they're just a bunch of legalists. This is what the Bible says. If you don't agree with what we say the Bible says, then you don't believe the Bible. I mean, they're like a bunch of little mini gods. Then we've got others of us that say, you know, we believe the Bible as much as y'all believe the Bible. <laughs> but we don't necessarily agree, agree on that one. Well, you know, you just, you guys over here, you don't love God. Well, you know, I want to keep a good spirit even toward the legalist. If they want to be miserable, I don't want to rob them of their life's desire. <laughs> Let them go through life just as miserable as they want to be. I'm just going to enjoy the journey and just try to be happy in what life I have left to live. And I made that decision long years ago. I didn't say this in the first service. But the last Southern Baptist Convention I went to was in New Orleans. That's been a long time ago. And I said then, this just, this isn't good for me spiritually. I'm just going to let the legalists all fight themselves and I'm just going to go on and be free in Jesus Christ. I want to encourage you, friend. You do want to be doctrinally right. But don't ever think that you are a mini-God and only you understand what every Bible verse means. And give others a little slack. Isn't that kind of, a, kind of a better way to live life? And be free in Christ. But hey, I think I heard someone said, move on, preacher, move on. So I'm fixed to move on. Let me tell you another wrong motive real quickly. Fear in God. 
Oh man, this is, this is a big, you're in Matthew, or if you're not, turn over Matthew chapter 10. Uh, you're in John, you're not in, back up Matthew chapter 10. I want to show you a verse real quickly. We're doing good. We're going to be fine. You know, this whole deal of fear in God, you know, it, it's a wrong motive. It's, it's just opposite of the truth. Fear God. Matthew chapter 10, you know the story. This lawyer asked Jesus one day, you can see it in verse number 28, what is the greatest commandment of all? And Jesus said, here it is. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. And then, and then he goes on to say in Matthew chapter 28, you, you fear God. You fear God uh, who is able to destroy both body and soul. Now, this whole idea of fear in God doesn't mean you're afraid of God, but it means you have a respect for God. In the Bible, there's a phrase that says, fear of the Lord. You see it in Proverbs a lot. Like Proverbs 1-7 talks about fear of the Lord. Proverbs in chapter 10, I believe, says fear of the Lord is beginning with. The, the, the phrase fear of the Lord and fear in God, they're opposites. Fear God means you respect God, reverence God. Fear of the Lord. Dr. Kendall has the best explanation I've ever heard. You ought to write this down. He said the little phrase, fear of the Lord, means you respect God's ways as revealed in God's word so that you choose God's opinion over anybody else. Now, you ought to write that down. You'll read it. If you read Proverbs, you're going to read that phrase over and over. Fear of the Lord, fear of the Lord, fear of the Lord. What does that mean? It means you respect God's ways as revealed in his word so that you choose his opinion over your opinion over my opinion, over anybody's opinion. See, if we did that, everybody in church would be a tither. God's word teaches tithe. Those that don't tithe say, well, you know what? I'm just not going to. Well, you know what they're doing? They're just choosing their opinion over God's opinion. The Bible says we're to forgive. We say, well, I'm not going to forgive. Well, what are we doing? Well, we're choosing our opinion over God's opinion. Now, this whole idea of fearing God you know, many people, they live their whole Christian life thinking, man, I, if, I, if I mess up, God's going to zap me. Now, I tell this story with permission. I tell it with permission. When John and Joel were growing up, we lived in East Texas in Sulphur Springs, and they, they did real well cutting people's yards, their grass. They had a lot of people. Joel was kind of the manager of that. He took care of the lining up the jobs and he took care of collecting the money every month. And he, he was the business guy. You say, what did John do? Well, John mowed the front yards. He wanted to mow all the front yards for everybody that came down the street. He'd wave at them. And Joel mowed the backyards, but Joel was a manager. Well, one day we had taught our boys as children to tithe, but I learned one day that Joel was tithing 20% of his grass money. And uh, he was really doing real well with this. And so I said to him one day, I said, Joel, you know, I'm so proud of you that you're tithing, your brother tithes. I said, but I've learned you're giving 20% to the church, which is okay, nothing wrong with that. But I just want you to understand, the 10% is the tithe. That 10% is, belongs to God. Now, whatever we give over 10% is we're giving what belongs to us to God. So that's our offering. That's just a tithe and an offering. Okay. Now, I said, but you don't have to give 20%. If, if you want to, you can, but you don't have. He said, well, I'd be afraid not to. I said, why would you be afraid not to? Now, y'all listen to this. He said, I'm afraid. He said, you know, our grace business is really doing good. 
And I'm afraid if I cut back, God would take away some of my customers. Well, I tried to explain to him that's not how God works. I said, well, no, he's not. So what he was really saying was, if I don't do this, I'm afraid God's going to zap me. I said, no, not God's not going to zap you. Now, Joel and John both have tithed ever since they've been having income. I, I, I really remember when Joel got to be 16, he wanted to buy him a truck. Now, John's the older, and he'd already bought him an old clunker. He bought him an old about $4,000 truck. Well, Joel said, I'm not buying, I won't buy me a new truck. And I never will forget, I went with him to buy this new truck. And uh, the man waited on him. He picked the truck out. And the man said, how are you going to finance this truck? He said, I'm going to pay cash. I can still see that man. He owned the dealership. He'd really made him a good deal because he was going to make all the money on, on financing it. Well, Joel wasn't going to finance. He's going to pay cash. Well, he really wasn't going to pay cash. He had all but $4,000. And his brother who never spends money on anything, had hoarded his money all these years. And he loaned Joel the $4,000, no interest. Didn't charge me any. And Joel paid him back later on in life. But I say that to say this. Look, folks, don't ever think that if you maybe don't do this or that or yonder, that God's going to come zap you. Listen, if God were going to zap us all for every time we don't do extra, before sundown, we'd all be zapped. And that's not who God is. Could I have an amen? Now, listen carefully, quickly. What are some right motives? Well, some right motives is love for God. Here, I quoted that verse out of order a while ago. Here's where the lawyer asked Jesus in Matthew chapter 23, what's the greatest commandment of all? And Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. Here's a right motive. When you're about to make a decision, ask yourself, if I make this decision, will this show God I love him? That'll, that'll really overcome selfish ambition. It'll overcome legalism. It'll overcome fear in God. You know, if I, if I do this or if I don't do, will that be a way that I would be showing my love for God with all my heart, all my soul, and all my mind? And then the second way to make a, make a right motive, a right decision, the right motive is, is to do what? Is to make God look good. Make God look good. In 1 Corinthians, you just want to write the verse down, chapter 10, verse 31. It's a great verse. If whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Now, how do you glorify God? Listen carefully. You make him look good. That's, that's, that's how we do it. When I do something that makes God look good, I, I bring glory to God. So I'm going to make a decision, all right? If I make this decision, will it make God look good? If I go there, will it make God look good? Or if I go there, will it make God look good? If I do this, would it make me look good? Make God look good. You know, growing up, my mother ingrained in me. My mother ingrained in me as a boy growing up and then even as a grown man when my mother was still living. From time to time, she would remind me, Charles Jr., never judge other people's motives. Boy, I've heard that. I can hear her say it now. And she'd have a stern look on her face. But that wasn't the end of the sentence. She'd say to me, Charles Jr., 
Don't you ever judge other people's motives. Judge your motives. Judge your motives. You know, my mother didn't come up with that. That's what Jesus teaches. It's so easy to stand back in life and watch people and judge their motives. Listen to me. One day, God's going to reveal their motives. You leave that to God. You and I'll be better off to judge our own motives and then say, okay, I'm going to make this decision. I'm going to do this. I'm going to go there. It's okay. Will it show God I love him? Will it make God look good? 